In your name we pray, amen. Well, today I'd like to talk about something that Scripture paints as very, very important, and that is the call of God to remain in Him, to obey Him, to seek Him, to worship only Him, and the depravity of man which seeks to depart from God. And to do that, I'd like to spend some time in the book of Jeremiah Today we're going to primarily be in Jeremiah chapter 44, but in order for that to be meaningful, I want to give a brief overview of the preceding chapter. Jeremiah can be kind of a challenging book to to study, to read, because it's not listed chronologically, Um, but just by way of overview, the nation of Israel at the time of Jeremiah is a faithless nation. Uh, the time is about 600 years before the birth of Christ. And in chapter 2, we see that the nation of Israel has left God. They've forsaken God because of a love for strangers, it says, to walk after them. And it's pretty vivid the way that this book betrays this nation. It describes it as a faithless, promiscuous wife. <clears throat> and God gives both a call to repentance, and gives a warning. And in chapter 4, there's this call that goes out, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it, because of the evil of your deeds. So a call to, to, to repentance, to circumcise their hearts, but if they don't, the wrath of God is going to go out, it's going to be poured forth like fire. Well, Jeremiah prophesies of destruction, certain destruction that's going to come upon them by the Babylonian uh, Empire, which was really the, the uh, major world force at that time. But these prophecies fall on deaf ears, and <clears throat> the the people really were very, very superstitious uh, in that day. They thought that they could worship uh, false gods and also have the true God at the same time. Uh, they worshipped Ashtoreth, which is, they called the Queen of Heaven, and in that uh, worship there were a lot of acts of, of um, immorality, a lot of sensuality. They offered their children in sacrifice to Moloch. I mean, this is incredible. This is the nation that God had delivered out of Egypt, and here they are offering their children in worship to Moloch in sacrifice. There was a valley called the Valley of of Hinnom that was on the south side of Jerusalem. And it's actually from this name that we get the word Gehenna for hell. So that's the, the concept that Christ brings to bear in his teaching on hell. Uh, This nation also set up idols actually within the temple itself. They bowed down and worshipped the planet of the sun. And Jeremiah uh, spends some time describing the folly of all this. He describes their idols as being unstable, things that have to be nailed down so that they don't totter and fall over. But it's amazing that despite their idolatry, these people thought that they could um, 
still draw near to God, that God would protect them because they had the physical structure of the temple. So they were very superstitious, and it reminds one of modern Christianity, that you can worship other things, you can go after other things, but then you can still go into a physical structure called a church building, and somehow things are going to be all right after that. Um, You don't have to turn with me, but in chapter 7 of Jeremiah 9 through 11, God asks these these questions. Jeremiah 7, starting at verse 9. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Christ, of course, uses this this very passage in the teaching of the... Uh, cleansing of the temple, the event of the cleansing of the temple in in Matthew chapter 21. So it's the same idea. Men that are double-minded, men that are really delusional in their view of God, thinking that they can serve idols and uh, go after the true God. But in the midst of all this, it's amazing that God calls this people, these adulterous people, to repentance. And later on in chapter 7, in verse uh, 23... We find these amazing words. God says, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in the way which I commanded, which I command you, that it may be well with you. So if only you'll obey me, I will be your God, and you'll be my people, that it may be well with you. But their response, ultimately in the next verse, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart, and went backward, not forward. So the more that God draws near to them, the more that God inclines to them, the further they are from God. They're they're literally running from God. God inclines himself to, to these people over and over again through the prophets, but they do not incline their ear to him. Well, Jeremiah's sad realization is that these people are not going to repent. Uh, despite all the, the prophecies of impending destruction if they continue in their sin, a 70-year captivity begins, and uh, ultimately Jerusalem is, is destroyed. But even in the midst of this captivity, God promises deliverance to these people if only they will call on him. And that's in chapter 33. But Israel doesn't call on the Lord. Uh, they do not even submit to the correction that the God that God gives them uh, for their sin. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is the uh, king of of Babylon, um, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar appoints a governor over them, but three months later, this governor is assassinated by a member of the Jewish royal family. So these people are just as rebellious as they possibly could be, but now they find themselves in a very difficult situation because they're scared of reprise from the king of Babylon since they killed his governor. And they want to leave Judah now and go back to Egypt, Uh, the same Egypt God had delivered them from 
the Egypt that Jeremiah describes as the iron furnace. So we now come to Jeremiah chapter 44. And the people, um, actually I'm going to, chapter 42, we're almost in 44. Uh, The people are asking what they should do. They're scared, they're they're fearful that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar may destroy them. And they come to Jeremiah in chapter 42, uh, verse 2, and, and plead before him, Please let our petition come before you, and pray for us to the Lord your God, that is, for all this remnant, because we are left but a few out of many, as your own eyes now see us, that the Lord your God may tell us the way in which we should walk and the thing that we should do. Skipping ahead to verse 6, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we're sending you, so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. Finally, these people are broken. Finally, they're repentant. Well, God gives the answer through Jeremiah, in verse, starting in verse 10 of, of the same chapter, chapter 42. If you will indeed stay in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down. And I will plant you and not uproot you. For I will relent concerning the calamity that I have inflicted on you. So, again, it wasn't just political happenstance that that now they're captive under Babylon. God had supernaturally worked to bring this about in punishment for their sin. He tells them, do not be afraid of the king of Babylon. I'm going to protect you Even though you deserve to be destroyed, I'm going to protect you from him. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you're now fearing. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. It's um, it's amazing. I will also show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your own soil. God's saying, if you will just stay where you are now, I'm going to turn everything back. I'm going to undo everything and restore you. Everything will be right. Well, what an offer from the Lord. Um, God gives a warning, though. There's always grace given with a warning. In verse 15, uh, the latter part of verse 15, if you really... However, if you really set your mind to enter Egypt and go in to reside there, then the sword which you're afraid of will will overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine about which you're anxious will follow closely after you there in Egypt, and you will die there. So all the men who set their mind to go to Egypt and to reside there will die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, and they will have no survivors or refugees from the calamity that I'm going to bring on them. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you enter Egypt, and you will become a curse, an object of horror, an imprecation, and a reproach, and you will see this place no more. So you leave Judah, you're not coming back. The Lord has spoken to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go in to Egypt. So it's very clear. Well, what's the people's response? 
ultimately in chapter 43, they turn to Jeremiah and they say, you're a liar. God has not sent you to tell us this. We're going into Egypt. And that's what they do. They go into Egypt and ultimately they destroy themselves. And uh, the book ends with the invasion of Jerusalem and the unthinkable happens and the temple is burned. So why do I go all through this? Why do I spend all this time uh, painting this, this historical picture? Well, the, the ultimate significance is that when Israel goes into Egypt, they leave God. And I want to talk to you today about why men go into Egypt. That is, why men forsake God. And the reasons uh, for Israel are the same reasons for men today. And I'm going to go through these. The first is carelessness regarding the word of God. What flows from that carelessness is a forgetfulness of sin, a minimization of the significance of one's own sin. And out of that flows a hardness of heart, unbelief, deception in sin. And all this is seen in chapter 44. So let's look at this element. First reason why men go into Egypt, why men forsake God, a carelessness regarding the word of God. Uh, Chapter 44, starting at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you yourselves have seen all the calamity that I have brought on Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they're in ruins, and no one lives in them, because of their wickedness, which they committed, so as to provoke me to anger, by continuing to burn sacrifices and to serve other gods, whom they have not known, neither they, you, nor their fathers. Yet I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again and again, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. But they did not listen, nor incline their ears to turn from their wickedness, so as to burn sacrifices to other gods. The bottom line is, these this people didn't care. God came, he came, he came over and over again, in loving kindness, in grace, willing to forgive them, willing to turn things backwards. It was, it's incredible. They didn't care. But carelessness never exists in isolation. As I mentioned, it always results in something else, ultimately, and that is carelessness. Treating the word of God in a cheap fashion always leads into forgetfulness regarding your own state and the significance of your sin. And we see that starting in verse 9 of chapter 44. God asks these rhetorical questions. Have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers? The wickedness of the kings of Judah, the wickedness of their wives, your own wickedness, and the wickedness of your wives, which they, com- uh, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. But they have not become contrite even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law, nor my statutes, which I have set before you and before your fathers." 
So they weren't even able to see who they were. They completely forgot the history of their fathers and their own wickedness. So they were careless regarding the word of God that led to forgetfulness regarding their own sin and hardness of heart. I mean, they're, they're unrepentant. They don't, they don't fear the Lord. They've not feared the Lord. They've not walked in his ways. So they're unrepentant. They're irreverent. They're disobedient. And ultimately, all this is summed up in the person who is an unbeliever. Uh, the one who says God's a liar. The one who says, I'm not going to allow God to determine for me what is right and what is wrong. I'm going to figure that out for myself. I'm not going to believe God that I could possibly be safe here with the Babylonian king about to come in and destroy me because of my own stupidity and foolishness and rebelling against God. No, I'm going to go into Egypt myself and see if I feel safe. And that's exactly how men, uh, how men live today in the sight of God. It's how men have always lived from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say you couldn't eat this fruit? Well, maybe I'll just taste it and see if it's okay. But one thing is for sure, I'm not going to allow God to act on my behalf and to tell me what is right and what is wrong. I'm going to experience it for myself first and see then whether or not I agree with God. The great deception, though, is that men don't just want to take a look. Men don't just want a taste. Men want to eat. Men want to be full. Men want to worship things. They don't just want to casually admire. And these people didn't want to just visit Egypt. They wanted to reside there. It was an, it was an act of permanence. It wasn't just a hiatus. In verse 12, And I will take away the remnant of Judah, who have set their mind on entering the land of Egypt, to reside there. So sin is always, in this sense, fundamentally, as I say, an act of permanence, in the sense that what we're really saying, what we're really proclaiming when we sin against God is that God is a liar and that I will be more alive without him, living over him rather than living under him in submission to him. And a major reason for this great deception has to do with the pleasure of sin for a season or what we could call the transient harvest of sin and that it can seem to go very well in this life for the one who turns from God. And we see that here in the same chapter, <clears throat> starting in verse 15, 44 verse 15. Then all the people who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah, saying, As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you, but rather we will certainly carry out every word that has proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, just as we ourselves our forefathers, our kings, and our princes did in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food 
and were well off and saw no misfortune. But since we have stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we've lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by the famine. And it goes on. So, hey, we're worshiping Astrith. Everything's fine. We had plenty of food. We're well off. We had no misfortunes. But, you know, as soon as we stopped doing that, then everything went wrong we've, and we've lacked everything. Of course, they were off. It was the grace of God uh, blessing them in a general sense despite all of their sin. But they're attributing the fact that God is gracious uh, to success in their rebellion against God. And again, that's how men live today. Another great example, you don't have to turn, but in Isaiah chapter 17, just fits really well. Isaiah 17, <clears throat> 10 and 11. This was a prophecy against Damascus, but it says, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. So they've forgotten God. Therefore, you plant delightful plants, and set them with vine slips of a strange God. So they've forgotten God, they've turned away from God, and they're going after foreign gods. And it says, In the day that you plant it, you carefully fence it in. And in the morning, you bring your seed to blossom. So you see there? You're planting something, you're going after something, you're endeavoring to do something. There's, six, there's a success. You've planted the seed, and in the morning, the seed has come to blossom. Well, it's self-validating, right? This must be the right way to go. And think about all the lost people who are living in wonderful houses with brand new cars who hate God or have no thought of God. But what is it going to say? So in the morning you will bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickliness and incurable pain. Psalm 37, 35, I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. There's, he has no troubles. He has no worries. He's a wicked man, he has nothing to do with God, and he has it all in this life. But it doesn't stop there. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. And the significance of that psalm is that there was an end. There was nothing in, in, in the sense that his life meant anything. There was nothing redeemable of his existence in any way. Yeah. Well, what's the full, the full weight here of what we've been discussing? And that is... That when men go into Egypt, when men spurn the loving kindness of God, drawing them to repentance over and over and over again, that is, when men leave God, they destroy themselves. In uh, chapter 44, verse 7, <clears throat> Now then, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, why are you doing great harm to yourselves so as to cut off from you man and woman, child and infant from among Judah, leaving yourselves without remnant? There is no third existence it's not like, well, I can, I can somehow exist 
in some abstract way apart from God. Either you are alive in God or you don't exist outside of him. Now, Scripture definitely teaches an eternal punishment, and that's not what I'm suggesting today. But there is no life outside of God. Um, I'm going to go backward a little bit here. I know I'm going through a lot of passages, but in chapter 7, 18 and 19, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? That's the thing men can't see. When you, when you run from God, what you're doing is hating yourself. In chapter 5, 24 and 25, they do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Men who turn from God don't say that. They don't fear God. They don't recognize that God is the one who has graciously in a loving, kind way, provided you with everything that you need. They don't say that. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Proverbs 8.36, He who sins against me injures himself. So, sinning against God, turning against God, is not an act of self-liberation, like the world teaches. It is self-destruction. Well, as I said at the beginning, men are fundamentally the same today as they were 2,600 years ago when these events took place in the time of Jeremiah. God called Israel to repentance, and God calls all men to repentance today. Well, how is it to be any different for us now? Jeremiah prophesied many things, but actually the most significant things we haven't even discussed today. Because Jeremiah prophesied that God would raise up a shepherd to gather in, to reign over, uh, to protect his people. He prophesied that there would be a righteous branch called the Lord our Righteousness. And that righteous one is Jesus Christ. In Christ, God made a new covenant for his people, the church, that instead of having a law that's outside of us, that we look to to obey, God has satisfied the demands of his law in Jesus Christ and put his spirit in his people to make us willing and able to obey him. I just want to close with two verses from chapter 4. We've kind of gone through Jeremiah, now we're coming backward toward the beginning. But Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. God's call is the same. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you will put away your detested things from my presence and will not waver, and will swear 
as the Lord lives, you're, you're looking to God, you're forsaking your sin in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. This is incredible. Then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. That is an amazing phrase. The nations will bless themselves in him. So the reality is, you don't have to destroy yourself. You don't have to depart from God and go into Egypt. You can turn to Jesus Christ and bless yourself. So may may God take these things and make them real for us. Um, The warning, though, we need to heed is do not go into Egypt. One amazing thing to me in that section that John touched on is just how that when you begin to depart from God, you lose all sense of how to rightly understand what's happening to you. And here they they looked at the situation. They said, well, when we were sinning, everything was going good. And the more we depart from the Lord, the duller we get the more we begin to interpret the things that happen to us in the wrong way, exactly the wrong way. And, uh, and we believe it. So um, this, uh, this little overview of Jeremiah is uh, a wonderful warning and encouragement too as we see God promising that new covenant.